Putting on the Mind of Christ is a compilation of presentations, talks, and news recorded over the past couple of decades. References to people, facts, and opinions heard were made at the time of the recording. Welcome to Putting On the Mind of Christ. Each week at this time, we go into the Ave Maria CD archives and build on a talk or two to see what our Lord might have to say to us. Many of these talks are recorded at area conferences. Most of the speakers are nationally known, but some may have been recorded by a brother or sister sitting in front of or behind you at Mass. Ave Maria Radio presents this program of God's Word to His people. This is Henry Root, your host and program producer for Putting On the Mind of Christ. It's unavoidable. You can't escape it. The Tea Partiers have made their presence known. The liberal left, with no way to really defend their actions, have sunk to name-calling. The PR people are spinning their tails. The election news and candidate views are everywhere, especially in my emails. If you're like me, you have to be careful about what you watch or read. Your thoughts may run out of control, and you'll need to talk to a priest professionally in a small room. But no matter your political viewpoint, you'll have to admit that the upcoming by-election will change a lot. A number of politicians and many more staff people will be out of jobs. The complexion of Washington will change. The out-of-touch liberal media will analyze what happened ad nauseum. They won't be able to figure it out. They believe that everyone thinks like they do. And then there are the radio and television spots. Hundreds of millions of dollars will be spent in the next month, each trying to convince you that their candidate is the best for the job and you should vote for him or her. That's true whether the candidate has been in Washington for over 40 years or is looking for a freshman desk. But what's a Catholic Christian to do? How can he catch up on this conscience formation? A little over two years ago, I recorded a local appearance of noted Boston College philosophy professor Peter Kreft. He spoke on the title of Voting as a Catholic. We'll have Dr. Kreft's talk and most of the Q&A session that followed right after this break. You're listening to Putting on the Mind of Christ on Ave Maria Radio. Putting on the Mind of Christ is a compilation of presentations, talks, and news recorded over the past couple of decades. References to people, facts, and opinions heard were made at the time of the recording. It's election time in the U.S. Those of us who try to live our faith are faced with decisions. Some of these decisions may force us to break with family tradition because our traditional party has deserted us over the past decades and turned into the party of big government, control, and death. It's certainly not that all party members are pro-death, but its leaders and most of its candidates for election are, and most of its financial backers are. As faithful Catholic Christians, we can't morally vote for them, even if our family history might go back generations with its voting traditions. That's just one of the points our speaker today addresses. Dr. Peter Kraft is a professor of philosophy at Boston College and at King's College in New York City. 
He's the author of over 45 books, including the Handbook of Christian Apologetics, Christianity for Modern Pagans, and Fundamentals of the Faith. He's a regular contributor to Christian publications and is an in-demand conference speaker. He's also a convert to the faith. He was standing in room only that evening to hear Dr. Kraft. Here to introduce him is the pastor of Our Lady of Good Counsel Church, Father John Ricardo, who hosted the event as part of their Gospel of Life series. Something very quick uh, about our speaker, who I hope most of us know. I just had the chance to meet him personally for the first time, although I said I feel like I'm meeting one of my best friends for the first time. How many of us have read anything by Dr. Kraft? Most of you, I think, I've told to do it. <laughs> I want at least 2% of your royalties, because... You're on every bibliography that I give out. <laughs> Actually, like the first ten books are by you. I quote him incessantly. Dr. Kraft is a professor of philosophy at Boston College. Uh, he's a convert to Catholicism from the Dutch Reformed tradition. He is quite simply, I think, the greatest gift to the layperson and to priests as well in the Catholic Church right now. His words are at one and the same time very profound and very accessible. Uh, he's the author of more than 45 books. There's uh, some 40-plus podcasts that you can download on his website or off of iTunes. I think the fact that so many of us are here tonight is evidence of the way in which we resonate with his words and maybe in a particular way with the logic that he comes to issues with in an age which does so little critical thinking. He's a master at helping us to think critically about the things that really matter. And that's what he's here for us to talk about tonight. His topic is the Catholic vote. And it's uh, going to be a most enlightening presentation. And then there's going to be uh, plenty of time for Q&A afterwards. He always says on his talks that the talk's the appetizer and, and the main course is the uh, Q&A, if I remember rightly. So come well-armed with good questions, and I hope you're up for the challenge. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Peter Kreeft. Thank you, Father, for an introduction I can't possibly live up to. I have deliberately designed my talk to be short. As an absent-minded philosophy professor, I have ADD, and I keep thinking that everybody else does too. So after 30 minutes, I always get antsy, no matter how good the talk, and talks aren't usually that good. <laughs> In fact, I myself have been bored by nearly every sermon and nearly every talk that I've ever heard, so I assume that you are too. But Q&A is not boring, so it's a little bit like the relation between purgatory and heaven. You have to endure purgatory to get to heaven. So be patient with your purgatory. I guarantee that the Q&A will be more interesting. I want to begin by saying some very obvious things, because they're true. That's the very best reason for saying anything. And because you either want to hear them or you don't. In either case, you should. Because if you want to hear them, I assume you want to hear them because you know they're true. Good for you. And if you don't want to hear them, then you need to hear them. Because if you don't want to hear them, then either you don't know them or else you've forgotten them, or else you don't want to be reminded. <laughs> the first thing is that being a Catholic is not just a Sunday thing. Being a Catholic obviously has a lot to do with every minute of your life, including your public life, your social and political life. The second obvious thing is that there is no such thing on earth as a totally Catholic society or a totally Catholic party or a totally Catholic candidate. So you need discernment to know how to vote. The Catholic vote is not automatic. Neither party and neither candidate in any election is ever perfect. So you always have to choose the lesser of two evils, like an exterminator on a cotton plantation. <laughs> See, he has only a finite amount of bug spray, 
to go after the boll weevils, so he has to either go after the lesser weevils or the greater weevils. <laughs> Here's a third equally obvious point. It's that the social and political responsibilities of Catholics are a quantum leap greater in a democracy than in any other form of government, because in a democracy, we the people are the regime. We are the sovereign. The buck stops here with me, with you. And the primary way we express our sovereignty is with our vote. So, is there such a thing as the Catholic vote? Let's ask first, should there be? I think the answer to that question is definitely yes. And the answer to the other question, is there a Catholic vote, is, alas, most of the time, no. Catholics in general are not very distinctive in their voting patterns in America. Although Catholics who believe and obey the Church and go to Mass regularly are. The other kind of Catholics are often called cafeteria Catholics. We used to call them heretics. <laughs> We're nicer now. In fact, in Congress, most Catholics are cafeteria Catholics, and it is Catholic legislators who have been the most powerful supporters of the most anti-Catholic, anti-family, anti-morality, anti-life legislation. The legislation supported most strongly by organizations that identify themselves as enemies of the church most clearly, like Narrow Planned Parenthood and the ACLU. I'm grateful to God that he's given us two infallible magisteriums, one for truth in Rome and the other for falsehood, the ACLU. It's almost 100%. <laughs> for instance, the strongest anti-life voice in Congress is from the senior senator from the People's Republic of Massachusetts, <laughs> which is the most Catholic state in the nation by population and the most pro-choice state in the nation by vote. This is not an accident. It's a train wreck. You also probably already know some of the principles which should guide your vote as a Catholic. For one thing, you know you must prioritize morality and moral issues, and therefore you must listen to and obey your moral conscience, here as always. It is always a grave sin to deliberately disobey your conscience. You also know that you must honestly try to form your subjective conscience by objective truth. And that, therefore, if you are a Catholic, you must listen to your church, because the church is the pillar and ground of the truth, according to the Bible. By the way, that's the Bible verse no Protestant ever quotes, 1 Timothy 2.15, the pillar and ground of the truth is the church. You probably also know that even though religion has a lot to say about politics, it doesn't say that the American system of separation of church and state is a bad thing. In fact, it's almost certainly a good thing for the church. When Christ put himself into the hands of Caesar, the result was a crucifixion. And that same result has happened again and again down through history. Every time Christ's church has put herself into the hands of Caesar's state. The weakness of the church in Europe today is the clearest example. The corruption of the church in Europe in the late Middle Ages is another. The church always gets corrupt when it goes to bed with the state instead of God. If you've read the New Catechism, you also know that the Church teaches in four areas, theology, morality, liturgy, and spirituality, and that morality is the primary area where religion and politics interfaces. You know that a lot of the issues in this election have clear moral dimensions. And you also know that the issues that immediately impact the lives of the most people and of ordinary people are, by that fact, more important than the issues that don't have that immediate and universal personal impact.
And you also know, as many Americans don't, that all people are intrinsically valuable, that persons are ends and not means, and that their lives are more important than their incomes. And you know that since all human lives are sacred, war is a very bad thing, unless it is absolutely necessary to save the innocent and to preserve the peace. And so is suicide and active euthanasia and all forms of abortion, including the farming of embryonic human beings to harvest their stem cells or organs to be used by other human beings. You know that every single human life is intrinsically valuable, not just instrumentally or pragmatically valuable as a means to someone else's ends. To put this basic point in the most basic possible language, since persons are very, very good things, killing them is a very, very bad thing. If you are morally sane, when you hear that, you should say, duh. <laughs> you also know that the government has a responsibility to the poor more than to the rich because they are more dependent and helpless than the rich. You also know that the institutions of marriage and the family are not only sacred to God, but absolutely essential to any good, peaceful, long-lived, happy, and successful society in all of human history, and that therefore they must be legally protected and respected. The four most long-lived and successful social orders in the history of the world all had a far higher regard for the family than any of the other societies around them. They were the social orders that were defined by Mosaic law, which guided the Jews for 3,500 years, Confucian custom, which guided China for 2,100 years, Islamic law, which guided Muslim societies for 1,400 years, and Roman law, which guided Rome, both the Republic and the Empire, for 700 years. Coincidentally, all multiples of seven. These principles are all cliches and platitudes to you, or certainly should be. In fact, the only people who don't know or don't believe these principles are very dangerous people. Because if they don't know them, they're either very stupid or very wicked. Some of these stupid people are highly educated. <laughs> we have a saying in academia, that idea is so crazy that only a PhD could possibly believe it. <laughs> All these principles, so far, are common sense, common to Catholics and non-Catholics. In fact, let me quote what Pope Benedict said in an address to the members of the European People's Party in March 2006. He says, there are three non-negotiables. As far as the Catholic Church is concerned, the principal focus of her interventions in the public arena is the protection and promotion of the dignity of the human person. And she is therefore consciously drawing particular attention to three principles which are not negotiable. One, protection of life in all its stages from the first moment of conception until natural death. Two, recognition and promotion of the natural structure of the family as a union between a man and a woman based on marriage and its defense from all attempts to make it juridically equivalent to radically different forms of union, which in reality harm it and contribute to its destabilization, obscuring its peculiar character and irreplaceable social role. And three, the protection of the right of parents to educate their own children. These principles, the Pope goes on to say, are not truths of faith, even though they receive further light and confirmation from faith. They are inscribed in human nature itself, and therefore they are common to all humanity. The Church's action in promoting them is therefore not confessional in character, but is addressed to all people, prescinding from any religious affiliation they may have. Such action is all the more necessary, the more these principles are denied or misunderstood, because this constitutes an offense against the truth of the human person, 
a grave wound inflicted onto justice itself. By the way, the clearest and most commonsensical book on Catholic social doctrine that I have ever read is Frank Sheed's Society and Sanity. I highly recommend it. Now, I assume you know all this. And if you know a little more about the principles of Catholic social teaching, you probably also know two additional principles that complement each other, like the two sides of one coin, even though they seem to many people to contradict each other. Because the first principle sounds socialistic, and the second sounds individualistic and libertarian. But they are not either socialistic or individualistic. Both of these extremes are repudiated by traditional Catholic social doctrine. The first principle is that the common good takes precedence over the private good. The second principle is the principle of subsidiarity, which has been enunciated by almost all the popes of the last 130 years since Leo XIII. It says that if a smaller and more local agency can do something, don't let a larger and more public agency do it. The principle of the priority of the common good says, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. And the principle of subsidiarity says, ask what your country can do for you. In other words, to put it in the words of the three musketeers, one for all and all for one. Or we could put it in the equally profound words of the Star Trek movies. In Star Trek II, Mr. Spock sacrifices himself to save the crew of the Enterprise and justifies it with these words, the good of the many is greater than the good of the one. In Star Trek III, the whole crew of the Enterprise risks their lives to save Spock, and Captain Kirk explains why to Spock. It's because the good of the one is greater than the good of the many. That is not logical, but it is true. (laughs) Unquote Captain Kirk. All these principles taken together appear as obvious wisdom to you if you have a knowledge of either traditional Catholic social teaching or rational human common sense. But does this tell you who to vote for in November? The answer I maintain is a very clear and painfully obvious yes. Who? Well, instead of giving you that answer, I'll help you to find it for yourself by giving you some of the principles from which you can easily deduce the answer. One of those principles is that some issues are clear and others are not. Another relevant principle is that not all issues are equally important. We must prioritize the more crucial issues over the less crucial ones. And if there is one that stands out as radically different from all others in importance, then that one must take priority. Adolf Hitler gave the German people a lot of good things. A sense of self-worth, hope, solidarity, community, optimism, meaningful work, and national pride. He cut unemployment from 40% to 0%. He was responsible for the Autobahns and Volkswagens. He eliminated all starvation, almost all private crime, and most poverty. The people freely elected him and loved him until he started losing battles. But this egomaniacal tyrant started the world's worst war, and hated, enslaved, persecuted, and murdered six million of God's chosen people. That was not an unfortunate excess, a side effect, the one dark spot on a wonderful record. That was the issue, because all other goods are means to the end of the good of persons. And Hitler denied millions of persons the very right to life, which is the foundation of all other rights, including liberty and the pursuit of happiness. This puts you in mind of the most important, most beloved, and most well-known words associated with America, the ones at the beginning of our Declaration of Independence, which speak of these three rights and their origin and their logical order. The original form was slightly different from the one we know. 
It read like this. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these rights are life, liberty, and property. Whether you say property or the pursuit of happiness, the three rights are all fundamental, inherent, and natural. That is, they come from human nature, not from the will of any ruler. And they come in a certain logical order. The third right depends on the second. If you don't have liberty, you can't have property because you are property if you're a slave. And if you don't have liberty, you don't have the liberty to pursue happiness. And both the third right and the second right depend on the first because if you don't have life, you can't have anything, including any rights. Under Abraham Lincoln, we fought and won a terrible, bloody civil war over the right to liberty, which slavery denied. Liberty won. Under Ronald Reagan, we fought and won a cold war against communism without shedding a drop of blood over the right to private property, which communism officially denied. We are now fighting a war, which is a civil war, but not a bloody war, except in abortion clinics, over the first and most fundamental right of all, over the question, do all human beings have a right to life or only some of them? One of the two presidential candidates in this election has a 100% pro-life voting record throughout all his long career in politics. The other has a perfect 100% pro-death voting record, according to Narrow Planned Parenthood. This candidate also said shortly after his nomination that he would legalize a form of infanticide. He promised to repeal the Born Alive Infant Protection Act, enacted by the Bush administration, according to which a fully mature, perfectly healthy, born baby who survived an attempted abortion could not be legally killed after being fully born. In other words, this candidate wants someone, the doctor, the mother, or the state, to have the right to kill you outside the womb just because another human being wants it. So the new principle that would be presupposed if this law were overturned is that it is the will of some human beings that give other human beings the right to life or deprives them of it. That is precisely the fundamental principle of Hitlerism. I think there has never been a clearer choice in the history of our country. First of all, never has the most fundamental right of all been so imperiled. And second, never have the people had a clearer choice between a culture of death candidate and a culture of life candidate. The vice presidential candidates are even clearer choices. One has the third highest Narrow Planned Parenthood rating in Congress, and the other is so clearly pro-life in her life and practice, as well as her words, that the other side, which controls most of the major media, are going ballistic, trashing her. They would not be afraid of a... Uh, pro-life candidate who is impolite, inarticulate, nasty, ugly, combative, stupid, arrogant, far-right extremist, male hypocrite. But they are terrified of a polite, articulate, nice, attractive, humane, intelligent, humble, popular, populist woman who practices what she preaches. <laughs> Athens did not execute any other philosopher or impiety, only Socrates. The Sanhedrin didn't hand over to the Romans for crucifixion any other rabbi who claimed to be the Messiah, only Jesus. The devil didn't ask God for special permission to torture any other saint, only Job, the best one. Is this a clear issue? Mother Teresa, who had the clearest mind of the 20th century and was the most commonsensical and outspoken person in the world, said very simply, when a mother can kill her own baby, anyone can kill anyone. How could the issue be more clear? But some people think it is not clear. So I will now briefly consider and refute the most usual objections to my point. 
Objection one, my private conscience is my guide. Well, this is a confusion. It's like saying that your eye's ability to receive light is your road map. Your conscience is your soul's ability to receive moral light, to receive the truth about what is good and what is evil. So your conscience is the guide-ed, not the guide-er. Your conscience must be guided by the truth. The truth is your guide. If you do not want to look at the truth, if you're not interested in the truth, but only your own feelings, then you are not honest, and that is not having a good conscience. Your conscience needs to be informed by the truth, always. Having a conscience is not enough. It must be formed by truth. All people have consciences, including slave owners, cannibals, and Nazis. Conscience is not God. Conscience is not divine. Conscience is human. Conscience is fallible. Objection 2. In America, the church is legally forbidden to tell us who to vote for. If she did, she would lose her tax-exempt status. I reply, well then, let her lose her tax-exempt status. <laughs> the church does not and cannot change or suppress the teaching of Almighty God for the sake of getting tax breaks from Caesar. When one of the candidates promises to be against and the other promises to be 100% for an intrinsic grave moral evil, like killing a million innocent human beings a year, it is that candidate and not the church who creates the situation in which the church's teaching tells you who to vote for. Any Catholic who does not know who to vote for in this election is abysmally ignorant, probably willfully ignorant. Objection three. There are many issues in this election, not just one. Don't be a one-issue voter. My reply is that's like saying Hitler's genocide is only one issue. What about all those other nice things he did? I think there is only one other issue remotely like the abortion issue, and that's the Iraq war. Because war and abortion are both literally matters of life or death. Both kill. The difference is that all abortion kills innocent persons deliberately. Some killing in some wars kills innocent persons too. Civilians, non-combatants, and that's a bad thing. But it's not usually deliberate. All war is killing, but not all war is murder. All abortion is. A just and necessary defensive war against an aggressor is not murder. I don't personally believe the Iraq war was a just and necessary defensive war against an aggressor, but abortion very clearly is. It's not crystal clear and obvious that the Iraq war is unjust. I think it is, but I'm not sure. You can find defenders of it who are serious Catholics and totally loyal to the church. And another difference, which is much clearer, is that abortion kills a thousand times more people than the Iraq war every year. Objection four. Catholics are liberals. They've always voted for Democrats. <laughs> and my reply is, this is true. Catholics are liberals. Democrats used to be liberals. They used to believe in liberty and morality and natural law. They used to really put little people first. They used to like religion. Now they seem to believe in immorality, hate natural law, and use the little people instead of helping them, and they certainly hate and fear religion. I used to call myself a liberal Democrat. I now have to call myself a conservative Republican. I haven't changed my mind on anything. <laughs> In the past, Democrats liberated the powerless and extended power to them, to women, to blacks, to the poor. Now, instead of applying that principle to the most powerless people of all, they officially support killing them. The party has betrayed its own deepest moral instinct. Objection 5. Not all evils can or should be outlawed by government. Government has become too big and intrusive. 
Get it out of the bedroom and out of the hospital. Didn't you say yourself that the principle of subsidiarity is a Catholic principle? It stands for decentralization. That government is best which governs least. My reply is, we can't get it out of the hospital if murder is happening in the hospital. And as for the principle of subsidiarity, which party comes closest to accepting it? Which candidate has promised to limit government bigness and government spending by vetoing every spending increase that comes across his desk? The principle of subsidiarity cannot be used to support government neutrality on abortion because the very first and most basic of all roles for government is to protect the lives of its innocent citizens. If it can't or won't protect the most basic of all human rights and the foundation of all other rights, namely the right to life, then everything else in that state totters on a non-foundation. Objection 6. This is America. The church doesn't decide the laws the people do. Reply is, that's true. And in America, all the people decide, including the people who happen to be in the church. And the people in the church, the Catholics, cannot be expected to leave their brains, their souls, their consciences, and their responsibilities at the door when they enter the polling booth, any more than non-Catholics can. Objection 7. You sound judgmental instead of compassionate. (laughs) I reply, I don't understand what is compassionate about tearing heads, arms, and legs off of babies, or what is judgmental about protecting them. What seems judgmental to me is the judgment of death on an innocent baby. Clearly, it is compassion that fuels the pro-life movement. Compassion for women as well as for babies. For killing your motherhood and your conscience is certainly not pro-woman. Objection 8. You don't really believe what you say about abortion, because if you did, you'd bomb abortion clinics, because that would be like bombing the railroad tracks to Auschwitz. My reply is we do believe it, so much so that most of us would give our lives to end abortion and save the innocent if we could. But we will not take lives. A good end, no matter how good, does not justify an evil means. Violence is not the right means. It does more harm than good. It would galvanize the whole nation against pro-lifers. John Brown did not end slavery by his violence either. Objection 9. You can't prove that abortion is wrong. It's a matter of faith. My reply is no, it isn't. No more than the wrongness of slavery or genocide is a matter of faith. The wrongness of abortion is based on science, not on religion. In the Middle Ages, science didn't know what happened in the womb. They had to guess. Today we know. That thing is human from the beginning. It is not an ape or a bird or a fish or a Martian or a Harvard Law professor. It's a human. (laughs) But today, even our science textbooks have become politicized and ideologized and skewered. Every science text before Roe v. Wade taught that the life of every new individual member of a species, including man, began at conception. After Roe v. Wade, they no longer say that. Yet no scientific discoveries have cast any doubt on it, but only confirmed it. But it is now politically incorrect, as it was politically incorrect in Nazi Germany to say that a Jew was the genetic equal of an Aryan. Objection 10. This is a woman's issue, so shut your male mouth. My reply is, fine, let Sarah speak to them. (laughs) Abraham had a wife named Sarah, too. She must have done some speaking. Every year, by the way, the polls reveal that women are more pro-life than men. Objection 11. You're an absent-minded professor. Your position is based on abstract philosophical principles or ideology. My reply is, yes, it is. 
It's based on the abstract philosophical principle or ideology of do unto others what you would have them to do unto you, or thou shalt not murder. Do you have an alternative principle? Objection 12. The more educated you are, the more pro-choice you are. My reply is, this is true, and it's proved by the polls. It was also true that the more educated you were, the more you supported Hitler. It was the peasants who opposed him. Peasants are often wiser than professors. $40,000 a year tuition at a prestigious university does not buy wisdom. Experience, virtue, and suffering buy wisdom, and they are all worth more than $40,000. Objection 13. You can't legislate morality. The reply is, of course you can. That's exactly what we legislate. We outlaw lying, cheating, raping, lynching, stealing, and murdering because we know that they are immoral. We outlaw wrongs, not rights. Not all wrongs, but great public wrongs. Morality is the basis of legality. Of course, law can't change the heart, and the heart is the heart of morality, but the law can change bodily behavior, and that's the body of morality. Morality isn't just having good intentions, it's also doing good deeds. Objection 14. Abortion is between the individual and her God. Reply, yes it is, and that should terrify her. Or should I use the old inclusive hymn here? But it's not just between the individual and her God, it's also between her and her son or daughter. And for the rest of her life she will be haunted by that son or daughter. She will dream of a voice asking with unendurable innocence, Mommy, why did you kill me? Objection 15. You're trying to impose the Catholic faith on America. Reply, no I'm not. I'm simply trying to protect innocent human lives. You don't have to be a Catholic to see that. Did Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation impose Unitarianism on America? Objection 16. In this country we go by consensus, and the consensus is against overturning Roe v. Wade. Reply, both premises are false. First of all, America does not go by consensus, it goes by law. We do not believe in the dictatorship of the majority any more than the dictatorship of the minority, or of one. And the second premise is also false. The consensus is not in favor of the present regime of unrestricted abortion. Two-thirds of American citizens, according to the polls, all the polls, are in favor of at least more restrictions on abortion than we have. But the Democratic Party has consistently prevented hot-button social issues which are always sexual issues, like abortion and homosexuality, from being directly voted on by the people. It has favored the imposition of the will of the judges on the people. Last objection. Don't be a narrow-minded fanatic. Fanatics are dangerous. Be tolerant. I reply, that's true. Fanatics are dangerous. A fanatic does things like killing other people when they stand in the way of his will or his convenience. A tolerant non-fanatic tries to persuade a fanatic by moral reasoning not to do such fanatical things. A fanatic ignores the rights of others. A tolerant non-fanatic respects them. A fanatic imposes his own personal subjective mind and will on everyone and everything else. A tolerant non-fanatic tries to find out the objective truth and tries to live according to that truth. Now, which of the two sides in the abortion wars looks more like the fanatic, and which looks more like the non-fanatic? Is it toleration to kill other persons simply because you don't want them in your world, because you don't want to make sacrifices in your life so that they can live? Is it fanaticism to believe that laws should prevent that kind of fanaticism? Which side is tolerant? Is it more intolerant to disagree with another person's ideas, 
or to forcibly terminate another person's life. How important is the Catholic vote this fall? My concluding point. America is in a unique position in the world, so much so that much of the world turns on this election. Europe is hopelessly secularized and will inevitably become a Muslim civilization unless it either enacts draconian anti-immigration laws or, even more improbably, experiences massive repentance and religious revival and begins to love in a very different way. For instance, to love big families more than big incomes and value having multiple children more than multiple orgasms. Canada is already simply West Scandinavia. Christianity's future is massively shifting to the global south, to Latin America and Africa and Asia. The United States is still, despite all its faults, the best country in the world. America is still, despite its apostasies, the most Christian country in Western civilization. And America is still, despite its declining world reputation, the center and source of global culture. America still has by far the most power to change the world, for good or evil. In all of her history, I think no election has been as important as this one. For this one pits the most pro-life candidate ever against the most pro-death candidate ever. And the issue that is literally a matter of life or death is the issue of literal life or death for a million newly conceived human beings each year. God, the giver of life and the father of all these children, will not, cannot, blink or sleep or snore or ignore the murder of his own holy innocence if he is anything like the totally just and totally loving Father that Jesus taught us that he is. Do you think that God ignored the oppression of his children by the communist and fascist dictatorships of the 20th century? Of course not. He brought them down. It took a bloody world war to do it. In his mercy, he brought down communism and won the Cold War without blood. And do you think he ignored the oppression of his children by slavery in England and America in the 19th century? Of course not. He brought down the regime of slavery. It took a bloody civil war to do it here, though not in England. And do you think he will now ignore the even more fundamental oppression of the very lives of his beloved children by abortion? No, he will bring down the regime of death. He always does. Our only choice is how. Will the means be bloody or unbloody? Will it be by a knife or a vote? Will it be by America's downfall or America's triumph? God will always be on our side if we are on his side. If we are not on his side, he can't be on our side because he can't contradict himself. This election is only one choice among many, one link in the chain, but it is perhaps the single most important one so far. Despite John McCain's premature withdrawal from Michigan, which may be reversed, Michigan could fool the pollsters. It has happened before. This state could be a crucial swing state quite possibly the crucial swing state in the next election, like Florida in 2004. My vote will count for nothing, <laughs> which has a 13 to 1 Democrat to Republican ratio, and the ratio is even higher in both houses of the legislature. Your vote may count for everything here in Michigan. You may have a 100 times the power of voters in other states and a 1,000 times the power of my vote. Well, what should you do then? besides not casting a vote for death and not staying home. Speak. Speak to your friends. Speak to your neighbors in Michigan and in all other states. I can't tell you specifically how, 
to influence your undecided friends and family and neighbors because I don't know diddly squat about psychology (laughs) or about political organization. I'm an absent-minded professor. But I do know that a personal phone call or conversation counts much more powerfully for most people than some impersonal organization's impersonal advertisement. But I am telling you, even the least activist of you, that if you want to help save this state, this nation, this election, this civilization, and this tottering world, you'd better do it quickly in the next few weeks and with commitment and conviction and power. And I'm telling you that you already know where the power comes from. It doesn't come from the Republican National Committee. It comes from God. And you know how to tap that power and how to learn to use it. The word is prayer. Honest, time-sacrificing, prejudice-sacrificing, self-image-sacrificing prayer and the sacrificial actions that come from it if you only listen to the one on the other end of the line when you pray. He's the real war hero who was wounded to death for us so that we could live. Please don't let him down. I'm finished. Now it's your turn. We've been listening to Voting as a Catholic. Our speaker was Dr. Peter Kraft. He's a professor of philosophy at Boston College. He's authored over 45 books, and as you just heard, he's an eloquent speaker. After this break, we'll listen in on some of the question and answer session that followed his talk. You're listening to Putting on the Mind of Christ on Ave Maria Radio. Putting on the Mind of Christ is a compilation of presentations, talks, and news recorded over the past couple of decades. References to people, facts, and opinions heard were made at the time of the recording. Welcome back. 450 chairs were set out in the Our Lady of Good Counsel Fellowship Hall in Plymouth on Friday, October 3, 2008, to hear Dr. Peter Kraft address voting as a Catholic. That wasn't enough. Many more chairs were brought in. Faithful Catholics crowded in. Gone were the normal tables. This night it was all chairs and standing. Uncharacteristically, they even held the start for a few minutes since many of the attendees were unfamiliar with the church and were still finding their way in from the parking lot. Professor Kraft gave them what they came for in his talk. But, as he said, the best part is in the question and answer period. We'll listen in on as much as we can. Here is Dr. Peter Kreft with that Q&A. Dr. Kreft, if uh, Roe v. Wade is overturned and abortion outlawed, how would violators be prosecuted? The same way they were prosecuted before Roe v. Wade was enacted. No woman was ever prosecuted before Roe v. Wade, only doctors. Dr. Kreft, thank you for speaking with us this evening. I just wanted to make a comment about Usaina's being involved. I've never been politically active, but this year I registered on the McCain website. You can register to make calls from your home, and that's what I'm doing. I've joined that to volunteer to make 20 phone calls a day to try to encourage people to vote for life. Thank you for that very practical suggestion. I hope everybody heard it. Dr. Craig, thank you. The candidate for death is wildly popular. Do you believe that people that support him are one of three, embrace the culture of death, know exactly what they're doing, don't understand what's going on, they hear talk but they don't truly know, or are simply ignorant of the issue? Usually all three of the above. I think most Americans are good people, moral people, and sane people. There are some very dark exceptions. The culture of death, when it's very well organized, often uses deliberate lies and deceptions. But 
the deceived are not to blame. The deceivers are to blame. So all you have to do is get the word out. I'm sure you've heard the famous saying, if wombs had windows, abortion would end overnight. All you have to do is, is show people the truth, show people the facts, and you can trust people. But the human heart was not designed at Harvard or Hollywood. It was designed in heaven. Dr. Kreeft, as we see neighbors and friends who are Catholic put out their signs for the pro-abortion candidate, my family started a discussion whether or not it was a sin to vote for that candidate. And I've never heard it said, but if it's not, why not? I think that's the wrong question. I think that's the question that gives them a leverage against us that we're the Puritan witch hunters who are condemning people and imposing a guilt complex and trying to manipulate people by religious strictures. I think the appeal has to be to reason. Hi, Dr. Kreef. Thank you for coming this evening. I wanted to ask you if you could talk more about the church giving up its tax-exempt status, because I really feel like the church is being held hostage by 30 pieces of silver. Well, I am a political idiot, so I'm probably going to say something that is really stupid. But from what I know of church history, I would say that if even the bishops, how many bishops are there, 200, 400? If every bishop illegally marched in front of an abortion clinic and got thrown in jail tomorrow, that would be the most wonderful thing you could imagine. What good does a tax-exempt status do? Well, it gives us money, all right? How many lives do you save with money? Some, okay. How many lives do you save with heroism? A lot. What do people respect, money or heroism? Heroism. Forget the money. What would you say to those individuals who find it difficult to vote for either candidate, either because both have some pro-death history or because they have traditionally voted for the Democratic Party and can't bring themselves to vote the other way. And so they say, I'm not voting at all. What would you say to them? Well, the first is a rational and the second is an irrational objection. Your emotional attachment to your past and your tradition shouldn't cloud your reason. To the first, I'd say, name me a single candidate that was a perfect wise saint and you had no disagreement with. In some sense, every election is a hold-your-nose election. It's the lesser of two evils. Now, the question is, on what principle are you going to decide which is the lesser of two evils? And that gets you into the issues. It is possible, in theory, that you should vote for the other person. If, for instance, we were in a situation right now where the Cold War was still almost hot and a nuclear war was threatened, and the Republican candidate was a very dangerous nuclear cowboy, I would say that's a toss-up. That's difficult. Here you've got murders actually going on. Here you've got threatened murder on an even more massive scale. I voted Democrat at least once in my life, uh, fairly recently. I voted against Barry Goldwater. I thought he'd start a nuclear war. <laughs> I liked his conservative principles, but I didn't think he was personally trustable. Now, if you really think that John McCain is so irresponsible and so not in love with peace and justice and civilization that he would be like the guy in Dr. Strangelove and ride the bomb down like a cowboy. If you really believe that, then your conscience tells you to vote against him. Yes. Notice those are the same issue. Life. Human life. That's got to be the prior issue. Dr. Kreft, there are certain individuals I know that they're going to be voting for Alan Keyes. Oh, is he running? 
Yes, not too many people know, but can't anybody Judy persuade Brown? him? Oh, <laughs> uh, well. <laughs> Ralph Nader sunk Clinton's ship. Ralph Nader elected Bush. So can't Alan realize that he might elect the other guy if he... So these people are afraid that they don't want it on their conscience that they are voting for someone who may not have a perfect pro-life record. Well, Alan Keyes isn't perfect either, you know, and he's much more of a hothead than John McCain. I have never met him, but I've met a lot of people who met him, and every one of them said he's a great orator and he's right, but he's a very dangerous, irresponsible hothead. They feel that they want to teach the Republican Party a lesson. For, you, don't, uh, you don't teach the Republican Party a lesson by spilling the blood of a million babies over them. Now, these are very orthodox, good Catholics, and I just don't know how to respond because they said that in the long run they're going to end up saving babies. How do they figure that? If they vote for Alan Keyes, the nation will sit up and take notice and say, oh, Alan Keyes, we forgot about him. We'll vote for him the next time. (laughs) I don't think so. And by the way, if you want somebody with a more clear and committed pro-life stance than John McCain, you can't do much better than his vice presidential running mate. Frankly, if Alan Keyes were running instead of John McCain, I'd vote for him. Great talk. I enjoyed it tremendously. I just wanted to add to your objection list, and my objection would be, well, maybe I should vote for the candidate that America deserves, not the candidate that America needs. You're not God. <laughs> I understand, So, but that would be my objection. Um, but my other question is, you're from Massachusetts, and I lived in Boston, actually New Hampshire, for about two years, and I'm trying to understand why, with a state that is so heavily Catholic, why it's so liberal. Can you explain that? Nope. (laughs) Although you might read Phil Lawler's book, The Faithful Departed. There's a lot of insight into the political chicanery in that book. It's very illuminating. Dr. Kreef, you touched on this a little bit, but I wondered if you could speak a little bit more about the objection you said where the person says it's between God and the woman. Basically, it's not my business to tell someone else what to do. It's between her and God. That's very similar to the objection, this is a matter between me and my own body. There's no third person involved. The point is, yes, there is. Once a child is conceived, that child is biologically, genetically, and metaphysically distinct from the mother, another person, with his or her own rights. So it's not just between you and God. It's between you and your offspring. And insofar as it is between you and God, you have to be honest enough to ask yourself the question, what does God think about this? And when you die and meet him face to face, what will he say? You don't have to use your imagination to answer that question. Jesus told us, whatever you do to one of the least of these, my brethren, you do to me. And that cuts across all political issues. That's the fundamental principle of Catholic politics that every single human being is God's child and must be respected, loved, and treated as an end because that's Jesus Christ. Mother Teresa used to say, I meet Jesus every day. I pick up Jesus from the gutter. I wipe the flies off Jesus. Sometimes Jesus spits back at me, and sometimes I meet him in distressing disguises, but that's Jesus, his children. Love me, love my kids. Hi, hello. Thank you. It was a very great talk. I kind of wanted to bring up something about the youth of our culture, It's a debate more so of 
they know it's a human being scientifically and they know what it is, but the argument is, is it a person? And there seems to be a huge variation of what people define as a person. It could be very subjective in a way. So what would be a logical explanation that you would give to me to say to these people, yes, it is a human being, but yes, this is why it is a person as well? Good question. Fundamental question. The fundamental pro-life argument has three premises. It has a moral premise, thou shalt not kill, or all persons have the right to life. Second, it has a scientific premise. That is, that as soon as you are conceived, you are a separate individual member of the human species, and all human beings are not just animals, they are persons. And then the third premise is the legal premise, that since persons have a natural right to life, they should have a legal right to life, that the purpose of any government is to defend that natural right. So the only way to avoid the pro-life conclusion is to deny either the moral premise or the scientific premise or the legal premise. Now, back in the days when Roe v. Wade was still being discussed and not yet enacted, and even shortly after it was enacted, philosophers used to argue that the scientific premise was uncertain. And they would also argue that the legal premise was uncertain. Now, personally opposed, but. I like to call that the Pontius Pilate Big Butt Award. I'm personally opposed to <laughs> crucifying innocent prophets, but. Millstone of the Month Award. Now, maybe that was willful ignorance, but at least that didn't deny the fundamental moral premise. What scares me is that in my own field, at least, philosophy, I see philosophers much more, people like Peter Singer, explicitly denying the fundamental moral premise, thou shalt not kill. Yes, of course it's a human being. Now, should we give it the legal rights of a person? No. Why? Well, not every human being is worthy of uh, that kind of respect. Some are, some aren't. To put it as simply as possible, there's two philosophies about human beings. One philosophy says that all of them are persons and have a natural right to life and should be respected. The other says only some of them are. Now, if you say that only some of them are, then it doesn't matter who doesn't qualify. You've got the camel's nose under the tent already. You might say, oh, I don't want to lynch blacks. I don't want to gas Jews. All I want to do is kill unborn babies. Yeah, today, in Germany, a very sophisticated, very moral, very Christian, very enlightened country, at first, it was only the severely mentally retarded and physically handicapped that were killed out of compassion. And once that camel's nose was on the tent, it expanded, and it eventually became the Holocaust. That's a one-piece camel. The nose doesn't smell bad, but the crotch smells horrible. <laughs> you mentioned the Democratic Party. My grandparents were Catholic, staunch Democrats. What happened? Do they view this as compassion? I don't know. Sorry. Ask a politician or a historian. In medicine, you have to diagnose the cause of the disease before you can cure it. That's not necessarily so in history. You don't have to know where it came from. We have to know just how to stop it. Mine goes back to the previous question. Um, you, you just explained why all humans should be treated as persons because it's like a slippery slope, basically. But is there a way to prove that logically? And if not, how can we defend that position to, say, the atheist who doesn't believe that humans have souls 
And so therefore, personhood or being able to notice personhood through conscious interaction or deliberations is all that really matters to them. Because if that capacity is not being actualized, then at that moment, it's just matter to them. Can you prove it logically? And if so, how? There are two answers. First, yes, you can, by a rather abstract metaphysical argument, which will convince only some people and not others. And you can also prove it by a theological or religious argument, which will not convince anyone who doesn't share your religious premises. But the much more practical answer to that question is the vast majority of people will, in fact, accept your basic premise that all human beings are fundamentally equal, at least in America. So you don't have to rely on abstract philosophical or theological arguments. You simply have to expose the premises of the other side. Some human beings ought to be killed by other human beings because those other human beings have a will to kill them and have the power to kill them. Do you agree with that principle? Well, of course not. Well, why doesn't abortion come under that principle? In other words, go on the attack instead of the defense. I'd like to know if you could address the argument made by uh, Doug Kamek in Catholics for Obama that voting for Barack Obama is actually a greater defense of life because he will put in place social programs that will take care of babies that are born. Well, the premise of that argument is that the main cause for abortion is the lack of social programs. That can be empirically tested. Check states, places where there are less and more such programs. Check times, years, where there are more and less programs. And correlate the abortion rate there. And if there's a very strong and direct correlation, you can measure how much it is. And then compare that quantity with the quantity of abortions that don't depend on that difference. That's a question that can be scientifically settled, I think. And common sense says, yes, you will expect a few cases where a woman wants an abortion only because she would love to have enough money to have other services, but they aren't available right now. Not many. It is true that the war can't be fought and won on only one front. We can't just defend babies. We also have to defend women. And therefore, those services have to be available. And the media have a massive censorship blackout on all those pro-life agencies that do exactly that. The pro-life movement is devoted 50% to saving babies and 50% to helping women. And the 50% about helping women is hardly ever known by the pro-choice people. So there's, there's already that, and there has to be that. Dr. Kraft, I'd like to ask you to reconsider your position on Iraq. I was there for three months in 2005 as part of a federal law enforcement effort to help the Iraqis prosecute Saddam, and the atrocities that we saw there were unspeakable. And when I came back, I spent years talking with my colleagues and people that I knew, trying to remind them that they wouldn't be thinking that we shouldn't be there if they were Iraqis. And while I was there, the Iraqis spent a lot of time thanking us, even when they couldn't speak English through the translators. They would come up and hug us and tell us that they could never have done it if it weren't for us coming. They were so grateful. It was unbelievable. And the things I saw there, I will never forget. Just a couple examples. I saw a map of Iraq, and there were villages that had been gassed by Saddam and entire villages were destroyed, and there were dots everywhere that a village had been, and the map was covered with the dots in the northern part, and the poison is still in the soil. Those weapons of mass destruction were used against his own people, 
And then they would just bulldoze over the village and go on to the next one. And there were pits that were dug for women and children who were fleeing. And they just lined up the women and children on the edge and shot them down. And some of the children, when they excavated, didn't have any bullet wounds, which meant they were probably clinging to their mother and fell in and were covered with the bodies or with the dirt and died of suffocation or dehydration. I think people don't realize what really was going on there. And if they did, they would be supporting that effort and they would be welcoming the opportunity to do that for the Iraqis. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. That's impressive because that's not an argument. That's just facts. As I said, this is a question of discernment. The Pope pretty clearly spoke out against the justice of the Iraq war. And his basic reason, I think, was we did not have the authority to do it. I think we went in with goodwill. We really thought there were weapons of mass destruction that he would use maybe to incinerate Israel. That was a mistake. Once we're in there, we certainly did more good than harm. That doesn't mean that we had a just cause and the right to be in there. Maybe we did, maybe not. But I think you can make a rather strong argument that Saddam had to be dealt with by somebody, maybe an assassination squad. Would it have been right to assassinate Hitler? Yes. Well, wasn't Saddam a kind of Hitler? Yes. Whether it required one country to declare war on another country and for what reason is a question of justice. And I don't think that a very good end, and I grant that saving Iraq from Saddam's horror is a very good end, justifies an intrinsically bad means. And I'm not sure whether this was an intrinsically bad means or not. It's a judgment call. I respect your opinion very much. Dr. Kraft, I just want to pick up on that gentleman's question on uh, about Doug Kimmick's argument, because I think a more clever, more subtle argument that he makes is really a two-pronged one. First, he says you look at the pro-life candidate. It has a political systemic type argument to it. He's the president. He may be able to appoint a Supreme Court justice who may be able to overturn Roe v. Wade, who then will just kick it to the states, who then may overturn everything if it's left to the states. So do you really know that your vote in voting for that candidate is going to have a direct effect on the moral good? That's point number one. Point number two is that the other candidate, say you believe in their positions on health care to more people, helping the poor, getting out of war, social injustice-type issues. Kemick takes all those as a whole and tries to weave a web of, deception, I think, to say you're really not voting for the moral good with this person because they can't do anything about it. Mm -hmm. And I've gotten in some pretty heated discussions with some friends of mine about that issue because I tend to be a one-issue voter or one issue is most important to me, right? It's their effort to convince me that there are other issues and these are more important. I keep coming back to 40 million people since 1973. Mm -hmm. Good luck convincing me. I wonder if you had any thoughts on that. Practically speaking, if the Democrat is elected, there will almost certainly be at least one Supreme Court appointee simply because some of the old liberals in the Supreme Court will feel free to retire. You don't have to die to get off the Supreme Court. You just have to be a little sick. <laughs> I mean, physically. Some of them are sick in the head already. <laughs> the other thing is you can ask the social liberals why it's so important to have programs for relief of poverty and, and health care and so on. And the answer is going to be because human lives are valuable. 
in all their dimensions. Well, that's exactly the same principle that you're appealing to for the most fundamental basis of all those other rights. You can't have good health care unless you're alive, and you don't solve the problem of health care by killing. Dr. Kreff, why do you think, um, while I, I love Governor Palin and have the greatest respect for Senator McCain, why do you think they're not making a bigger issue or making it a main issue so far in their debates and their campaigns? And a second part to that question, why do you suppose that some of our Catholic churches are more vocal about this in their homilies and why can't the Chicago Cubs win a World Series in a hundred years? I don't know. There are mysteries. <laughs> there are great mysteries in human life. I don't know. Clearly, McCain and Palin's advisors have told them to tone down those issues. That I understand. Advisors are abstract, out-of-touch elitists. But why these two populists listen to their advisors, I don't know. I think it's a strategic mistake. If I had no strong opinions about the culture wars and the social issues at all, and my only opinion was to get the Republican ticket elected, that would be the primary strategic aim, because most American people will say that issue trumps everything else, and it's not politically correct to talk about it, but it's here, and you win issues here. So I don't know why they're not. Certainly there are ways of talking about it that are not offensive. Maybe neither of them is quite comfortable with those ways. In the debate, Sarah was asked about one hot-button issue, homosexual marriage, and she gave a good answer, but it was an embarrassed answer. I'm tolerant, whereas Joe Biden was not at all embarrassed. You know, this is our position. Now, there's no reason the Republican position can't be equally clear and prepared. I don't know why it isn't. Dr. Kraft, thanks for coming tonight. I think this talk was very beneficial and very clear for everyone who sat here. I'd personally feel a lot better if this talk was being held in every church in Michigan, Roman Catholic Church in Michigan, tonight. You know, we are Get them to invite me, I'll come. <laughs> you know, we are called on as Catholics to form our social fabric of this country, and yet, you know, I have Jewish friends. I'm very clear on how they're going to vote. They're not worried about their tax-exempt status, and they vote as a block. In terms of entire Catholics, they're probably one-eighth. In terms of devoted Catholics, the non-cafeteria Catholics, we outnumber them three to one. Nobody really worries about how Catholics are going to vote because we can't get organized. If you read about the other candidate, he's one of the most organized candidates in the history of this country, and he's winning because of that. Evil is better organized than good. What do we have to do to get our church leaders? The cardinal should be here tonight. What do we do to get ourselves organized so that our voice is heard? Well, you start by doing exactly what you've just done. Thank you for your talk. My question relates to something you said earlier about Peter Singer. My question is, how do we get people like that in the position he is at our elite institution? I very much have these same discussions with my Catholic friends that are for the other candidate, and I'll try to reason with them logically, and they seem immune to arguing. And I think in the culture we have at the, again, our elite institutions of education, people that don't appear to understand logic argumentation. So two questions. How did academia get to this point? And I guess the answer is to raise our kids so they can argue logically. Thanks for all the books you've written on that, by the way. So can you explain what happened to academia? 
I can't explain what happened, but I can, I think, explain why Peter Singer is so famous. He is, by the way, the most famous philosopher in the world by name recognition. He's nice. He's very sweet. He doesn't at all look like Adolf Hitler or sound like him. But he says, I think he hasn't gone back on this, he thinks that human babies are like cars. There should be a 30-day warranty. He literally says there should be a 30-day warranty, and if the parents don't like the baby, they should be able to kill it during the first 30 days. There ought to be laws against killing whales, but not humans. But he says it's so nice. I was at a philosophy convention once. I never go to these things. They're so boring, they're interesting. Uh, But I was dragooned into giving a talk, and it was about an hour early. So I heard another talk by a defender of Peter Singer. And Father Katursky, who's a very good uh, pro-life philosopher at Fordham, was giving a response. And I just heard the end of the talk, and I heard his response, which was very good. And there were about, oh, maybe 80 or 100 people in the audience, and all of them were well-dressed academics, except that there was one lady there who was both pregnant and holding a baby, and she looked very Irish, so she was obviously Catholic. And the discussion was about Alzheimer's. The point of the uh, talk was personhood is not an objectively real thing. It's a social construct. So society should determine whether you are a person with a right to life. And most of us wonder about whether advanced Alzheimer's patients are. So we should be able to kill them compassionately. And the argument was just going nowhere. So Father Katursky said, I've given my position. You can take your choice. I can't give you any more arguments. So this lady was arguing that the human species is very much like any other species. Take mice. We naturally divide all the mice in the world into three categories. Those that are pests in our house, which we kill. Those that are pets, which we love and preserve their lives, maybe even send them to the vet and spend some money on them. And finally, field mice that don't affect us one way or another. She says, I see absolutely no logical reason whatsoever why we do not treat other human beings in exactly the same way. Nobody in the audience said, "Ah," except one, the Catholic lady with the baby. Father Katursky said, does anybody disagree with that? And my hand and her hand were the only two hands that were risen in the the audience. So, as I said before, the more schooling you got in Hitler's schools, the more you loved him. Education is not an automatic come-out-of-the-cave-and-see-the-light thing. It can be an indoctrination. So as a professional philosopher, I love to argue and I love to appeal to argument, but unfortunately, in this country, that's not going to win elections. One of my friends, Father Teselli, with whom I wrote Handbook of Christian Apologetics, wonderful philosopher, took his class to an abortion debate. I think Janet Smith was the pro-life speaker, and she's terrific. And the pro-choice speaker was some bumbling dunderhead. I don't know who it was. (laughs) And his class was a typical class, you know, a third, a third, a third. Third pro-life, third pro-choice, third mushy middle. And he asked the class afterwards, in a class discussion, how many thought that the pro-life person won the debate? Every single one of them said they won the debate. And the next question was, have any of you changed your mind? And the only people who changed their mind were a number of people in the mushy middle who became pro-choice advocates on the basis of that debate. And he was amazed. He asked them why. He said, well, we had such sympathy for the pro-choice person. And the pro-life person had all these arguments that were so strong. It was an unfair fight. She had all these weapons. Well, I guess people are so corrupted by pop psychology that truth doesn't matter, niceness matters, and we have sympathy for the underdog. Now, my point is not simply to preach against this. My point is we've got to take that into consideration. 
when you're dealing with a person, you've got to realize that. He's not just a logical entity. He's a logical entity. He's a moral entity. He's got a confusion. He's probably got a guilty conscience. And he admires niceness. And he wants to back away from anything that looks nasty and uncomfortable. Well, one of the answers to a question I backed away from before is, how come so many Catholics are so wishy-washy and weak about this? I guess because we want to back away from things that are uncomfortable. And that hasn't worked. So if that doesn't work, and if mere abstract argument doesn't work, what does work? Mother Teresa, tell it like it is. Nobody ever won an argument with Mother Teresa. (laughs) I wonder what Peter Singer would say. To say there's too many children is like saying there's too many flowers. Let me tell you a story. (laughs) There's a Jewish mother who had a talk show. Her name was Janine Graff. I don't know if any of you heard of her. She's in in Massachusetts. I don't think she's on the radio anymore. She's very pro-life. And Bill Baird, who was a sponsor of many abortion clinics in Massachusetts, was on. And she just asked him questions, and the people called in and asked him questions. It wasn't really a debate. It was a kind of a friendly format, but he knew she was pro-life. It was a two-hour show. During the uh, break between the two hours, they were sitting and talking, and Janine told me that she said, uh, Bill, you seem to be, in your private life, a very nice person. I'll bet you went to Sunday school once. He said, oh, yeah, 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 way back then. She said, I'll bet you were in love with Jesus once. And he broke down and cried, ran out of the studio, left her with 60 minutes of blank airtime. Never saw her again, but she says every Christmas he sends her a Christmas card, just with his name. Now, a simple sentence like that can do something to a heart. That's a Mother Teresa sentence. If we uh, start with the premise that issues of life are primary issues in in this election or, or in any election, and then look to candidates and have one that is sending babies to death with abortion. And then if we look to the other side and say, maybe this candidate is sending people to death in war, would it not be logical to demand a candidate that, while not perfect, is at least solid on life issues, demand a legitimate third candidate? The principles of both candidates are very clear. McCain is not a warmonger. You may disagree with his assessment about the Iraq war, but that's like disagreeing with what strategy to use for the pro-life movement. The difference between, let's say, Judy Brown's all-or-nothing strategy and an incremental strategy is not nearly as significant as the difference between the principles of the pro-life movement and the principles of the culture of death. So you may disagree with McCain's tactics, and I still think I do. I still think I disagree with the Iraq war. I can't get over the hump about rightful authority. And the Pope is, to me, a very wise man. And even though what the person over here said moves me very much, and I agree with it, still, I'm not certain. But that's a question of uncertainty. That's like, shall we have all these social programs to bring unemployment down to zero from 40%, and shall we have Volkswagens and, and Autobahns? Yeah, that's important. But meanwhile, you're spilling human blood. And all these social services, wouldn't these be good things and wouldn't they reduce the rate of abortion? Yeah, they probably would. And that would, in the future, somewhat reduce the rate of spilling human blood. But you're spilling it right now. It's like two people invade your house and one says that I can feed your family. It's starving. I've got a lot of food for you. And the other says, well, you've got too many children, so I'll kill a couple. So he puts a, a knife through one of your children. That's not a policy decision. That's a decision between a clear and present danger that's happening right now on the one hand and a promise to relieve it, maybe, on the other hand. So it's the difference between moral clarity and moral confusion. There's no moral confusion about abortion. Abortion is not a complex issue.
Hi. I get a lot of misplaced charity when I talk to people about different life issues. And one of the ones I'm hearing a lot now is this issue that all of these embryos that are frozen are going to be destroyed or die anyways. So we should use those for the destructive embryonic stem cell research. I would just like to hear your points on that. Well, that's rather like saying the Jews in Auschwitz are going to be killed anyway, so let's use their skins for lampshades. I see no difference between those two cases. Lampshades will help the poor. <laughs> that's human stuff. That's Soylent Green. Remember the movie? I had a question. I was just wondering if you had ever been to Washington for the pro-life rally? No. Okay. And secondly, I would wonder if you could give us one solid grassroots effort that we could leave here that we could possibly do in the next four weeks. I think the suggestion made by the woman over here is a very good one. This is an unspectacular thing, but a very effective thing to do. My wife worked for one of the few pro-life Democrats in Massachusetts, and he said, you can elect a lamppost if you make enough phone calls. <laughs> That's right. We could probably be here all night, I think, and uh, I know it's a little warm in here, and I'm not sure how, how long Dr. Crace is willing to stand up here because I'm sure he's going to get bombarded by uh, people who are going to come up. And we just want to thank you deeply for being with us tonight and for your great words of wisdom. In this edition of Putting on the Mind of Christ, we've been listening to Dr. Peter Kraft in a talk he gave at a Gospel of Life meeting at Our Lady of Good Counsel Church in Plymouth, Michigan on Friday, October 3rd, 2008. His title was Voting as a Catholic. For more information on Professor Kraft and his writings, go to www.peterkraft.com. We thank him for his permission to broadcast this talk. A CD of this program is available. Order program number 379. To place your order for more information, phone 734-930-4506, 734-930-4506, or email orders at AveMariaRadio.net. Putting on the Mind of Christ is presented by the Ave Maria Communications Guild and this station. This radio station is listener-supported. If you like what is offered here, we ask that you support it with your treasure. To assist in the production of this program, you can become a radioactive Catholic by joining the Ave Maria Communications Guild. Phone 877-288-1077. 877-288-1077. Or go to amcguild.org on the Internet. Catholic Radio. It's yours to keep. This is your host and program producer, Henry Root. Thanks for being with us on this edition of Putting on the Mind of Christ. Until next time, may our Lord richly bless you and your families. This is Ave Maria Radio.